I welcome you all to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival. Uh, if you'd all take this moment to please silence your phones, I'd really appreciate it. Um, just a reminder, we encourage you to tweet along um, to today's discussion, and we're using the hashtag TTF for the Texas Tribune Festival. Um, we'll be up here talking for about 40 minutes or so, and then we're going to open the last 15 minutes to audience questions. There will be microphones in the back. Uh, we welcome you to participate. And just a couple of housekeeping reminders. Uh, lunch will be held on the main mall um, later today, and then the evening will conclude with a reception at the AT&T Center. Um, so with that, um, uh, I'm going to introduce our panelists. We have um, Representative Elliot Neistat, um, a Democrat of Austin. He was the vice chair of public health. Uh, Representative Myra Crownover, a Republican of Denton, the chair of public health. Representative Four Price, a Republican of Amarillo. Uh, he was the chair of the Article II subcommittee um, on the Appropriations Committee dealing with health and human services. Um, Representative Richard Raymond, the chair of human services, um, a Democrat of Laredo. And Representative Garnett Coleman, a Democrat of Houston, um, and a longtime member of the House Public Health Committee and chair of County Affairs. Got it. Um, so, Representative Myra Crownover, I figured we would um, begin with you. It was your first public health, um, or your first session to chair the Public Health Committee. Um, what happened? What got done in the 84th ledge? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was a Fire experience. Um, fortunately, I had my great vice chair and um, other tremendous. We had a great committee. It was a real team effort. Um, it was uh, a learning experience for me, needless to say, but I think we came up with some really good things. Um, some of them were. Uh, Is it on? Yeah, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, some of, is that better? Okay, great. Well, we can't see people out there because of these lights in our eyes, so I feel like I'm on a police lineup or something. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I think the, the, we tried to stay uh, on the committee. You know, you can get down in the weeds and get all lost in little minutia and things. So we tried to have a really upper-level look at where healthcare needs to go. And I think uh, one of the major things is that we're going to have to bend the cost curve. We can't, you know, people keep coming up with fancier and fancier things. And um, uh, where you practically, and the joke was, you know, we're going to get into head transplants. Well, we can't afford head transplants when people are not getting the uh, treatment that they need for simple chronic diseases like hypertension and diabetes. So we tried to keep it really down to earth and what really matters. And um, I think we did a good job of that. We, we did pass a bill that, uh, that I think is really important, um, the thin bill, where we really look at what, what matters and really get down to the basics where it really impacts the citizens of Texas. And the first goal is bending the, the curve. Second one is to have to bring people into the community so that they feel like 
it works for them and to improve the general health of the state of Texas. Um, and one of the important things that I read, you know, that people uh, always thought that all this really expensive, exciting medicine is what is changing lives. But actually, in the state of Texas, if you look at it, what has changed lives is simple things like clean water, sanitation, sewer systems, and that's expanded the life cycle. So now we've gotten where we're kind of looking for something that is uh, uh, very exotic and forgetting how simple the things are, like smoking, diabetes, uh, controlling of our weight, things that people are in control of. Sure. Well, I, I want to expand a little bit on this um, idea about bending the cost curve. Um, the 84th legislature, as far as I know, was the first um, legislative session in recent memory where um, you know, spending on Article II, so Health and Human Services, when you're talking all funds, state and federal, actually surpassed Article III for education um, for the first time. Obviously, there are a lot of reasons for that. There's sort of about growing need, but I'm wondering, um, Representative Coleman, uh, what you see, you know, if we're talking about bending the cost curve at a time when enrollment in, um, you know, Medicaid and other programs is, is rising, how do, you, how do you go about that? Well, I, I think uh, primary care is extremely important uh, because that prevents people from getting sicker if they are receiving their checkups. And so primary care medical homes are, are clearly an important part of what we're doing. Also, the district projects under the 1115 waiver are giving us a look at the best way to provide that care, whether it be mental health or whatever the case may be. Uh, clearly, chronic diseases, uh, as the chairwoman said, if we're looking at diabetes, uh, uh, hypertension, uh, heart disease, things that clearly, you know, create cost uh, if we can prevent people from getting, uh, becoming ill, uh, then we'll do better. And, and so I think we're on that track uh, to look at the best practices, streamlining care, but keeping people out of hospitals. And then if they do go in the hospital, keeping them from going back in the hospital. So I, I think these things are, are, are moving forward. When it comes to the cost, though, you know, we have to remember education does not have federal fund, many federal funds in it, and if it does, it has, uh, that's, you know, free and reduced lunch. Uh, clearly, the majority of the money in health and human is our federal funds, uh, and, and so I think we're still in line. We shouldn't have those costs, you know, go. We should be trying to drive those costs down, though. I really do. I, I think that's important. I think we can so, Representative Price, you were involved in the budget negotiations, talking about health and human services. Obviously, there were some contentious things that came up this session. Um, I think a measure that you supported that would have um, boosted payments to primary care doctors did not make it, um, but, um, you know, health and human services still this year funded at, I think, record levels. So, so who were the winners and who were the losers this session? <laughs> I think uh, there were some. There were a lot of winners, frankly, uh, in in that context. Uh, certainly, um, with additional 244 million dollars to mental health programs uh, across the state, coming off the heels of a very uh, good session in 2013 for mental health funding, I think 2015 continued that trend in the right direction. 
So what we saw was a build out uh, of capacity for inpatient services. We also saw uh, funding to increase uh, outpatient programs as well as a reduction of the waiting list. So mental health, I thought, uh, fared very well in this session. We did have uh, additional funding and, and very good bills outside of the appropriations context, but tied to it for veterans programs, especially those in crisis. So, uh, you know, when you talk to, especially in rural areas, uh, law enforcement who have to deal with folks in a mental health crisis, sometimes, you know, it, it takes a day or longer for them to devote deputies and law enforcement resources, and they're not physicians, and so they're not really handling treatment correctly, but they're dealing with it, and it's a real problem. And even in Harris County, you know, that, that is what folks will say is the largest mental health facility in, in Texas is the Harris County Jail. So that, that really was necessary, so that's a big winner. Uh, the nurses also, I think uh, we saw some progress with funding and programs for nurses. And I don't really think there were losers, but to be honest, uh, I, was, I was disappointed that our 1% increase in primary care physicians did not ultimately pass. The, the House and Senate uh, didn't see agreement, I guess, or come to any agreement on that. But that would have been beneficial for us. I think that's something that we might want to focus on in the future. Um, you know, it, it, cost, it would cost half a billion dollars. That, that's what it was uh, in our proposal, so it's not inexpensive. But everything we can do to show CMS that we're trying to make sure that we have adequate access to an adequate network and we incentivize primary care physicians to take those patients will benefit all of us. So I want to talk a little bit more about mental health, and I want to also bring up, um, I think, maybe the elephant in the room that, that did not really get addressed this session, which was the idea of um, expanding health coverage under the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion. Um, this year did not really come up. I mean, I think it was maybe brought up in the Senate. It was voted down pretty quickly. Uh, but when we talk about mental health, there are, I think, a lot of... Um, you know, potential beneficiaries who, you know, who maybe have mental illness who sort of fall in that gap. So I wonder if mental health is a priority, does that, does that change the political calculus about Medicaid expansion? And if it, if it doesn't, then, then what do you do to, uh, to improve care for those folks? So I'll open it up to you. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say a few things about Medicaid expansion. And I have to go back to when former Governor Rick Perry proudly announced that Texas would not participate in the expansion of Medicaid. And I remember thinking and then articulating to the media and to other groups that I thought the governor was being short-sighted, mean-spirited, and fiscally irresponsible in in rejecting what at that time was about $90 billion, $90 billion in Federal Affordable Care Act funds over a 10-year period. And in turn, because of that, foregoing the opportunity to provide health coverage to between 1 million and 1.5 million uninsured Texans. And I used to say, and Texas, as many of you know, has the highest rate, the highest percentage of uninsured people in the nation. But now we can add to that that we also have the highest number of uninsured people in the state. Um, why are we not funding 
Medicaid expansion, I'm sure we would all have different answers and some of them make more sense than others. We do have problems with Medicaid, but they're not insurmountable. But I just want to throw out why I think that, that we're not participating in Medicaid expansion. It has to do with a man named Grover Norquist, who many of you have heard of. And when asked, what do you think of government? He said, government, I love government. I'd like to be able to roll it into a ball so I could drown it in the bathtub. <laughs> and he wholeheartedly believes in starving the beast. The beast is government, giving people back their money and actually getting legislators, members of Congress, and candidates to sign a no new taxes pledge. So I certainly don't know if this is true, but, but I wouldn't be surprised if after former Governor Perry announced that we would not participate, that he got a phone call from Grover Norquist who said, right on, Governor, because we want to starve the beast. We don't want states, government to have the wherewithal so people stop looking to and depending on government. But, but do you think that there is, um, you know, I mean, when people say healthcare spending has, mm -hmm. you know, is, is growing and, you know, talking about bending the cost curve, I mean, it, uh, do you see that as a, uh, you know, as, as, and, you know, as a justification not to um, expand healthcare? I mean, it, it does seem like that, you know, if we're talking about bending cost curves. No, I, you know. I see it as a reason to expand Medicaid. Because again, while we're not today talking about $90 billion over a 10-year period, we're talking about anywhere from $71 billion to $114 billion, depending on who you ask. And that's a lot of money, which would certainly address exactly what you're talking about. Representative Cranover, do you want to say something? Well, I, I don't think that there is any appetite in the House or the Senate to expand uh, Medicaid. It is an unsustainable program, and for us to create more of it will just create problems. I have talked with my congressman, uh, Congressman Michael Burgess, who is a doctor, and he says at the federal level there will just simply not be the money for it down the, down the road. So I think Texas has been um, very diligent about looking at it and realizing that that's not the road we're going to go in. We also have an election coming up that's going to have huge, uh, huge consequences. So um, that's why I worked so hard on passing the health savings account bill for ERS members. I think we have to look at the other things, and Republicans have some good ideas. Uh, we know that we have to be uh, uh, get the consumer in the process. It has to matter what it costs. We couldn't do food the way we're doing health care. And uh, I think there's also a huge fallacy that we keep repeating and repeating. Just because you don't have health insurance doesn't mean you don't have good health care. In Denton County, we have 18 different community clinics that are doing an excellent job. And many times they do a better job about treating the patients as a whole. They treat the whole family. It's an education process. It's a, a teaching and reteaching process. 
that is actually working very well, and it is not incumbent on whether you have health insurance or not. So I think part of the conversation that we are having is really not very honest. Well, um, Representative Raymond, I want to give you a chance to yeah, get here. Uh, just weigh on this real quick. Um, so we all understand the political realities of the ACA <laughs> or Obamacare and the Republican position. I get that. Uh, what we do during the session, all of us up here, is we have a lot of conversations uh, between ourselves and other members that we don't always take to the press. So one of the things that I did uh, is early on reach out to uh, one of our Senate colleagues, Dr. Schwartner, Senator Schwartner, and I said, you know, you guys, I know you're not going to be in favor of expanding Medicaid. However, what Governor Perry and others had talked about for a long time is block grants. And I said, how about, what if we as Democrats, uh, a bunch of Democrats come together, and I didn't talk to Democrats because I was afraid some of them would get mad about this idea. <laughs> but uh, that we put forth an idea that we approach the administration to do a four-year pilot program where they give us a block grant in the state of Texas on additional funding that we would get as a result of the ACA, right? Look at what that funding would be, give it to us as a block grant over four years, call it a pilot program uh, that we revisit three years from now and see if we want to continue by then. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to have a new administration by then. Might have, Back then, I was saying that it might be Jeb Bush. It may not be. Uh, I was saying it would be well, Hillary. It could be Hillary, and I still think it could be. But in any event, and then separately, uh, I remember uh, Garnett started doing that, and we hadn't talked to each other, but he thought of the same thing. And so I think support was there on our side, and I really believe that support was there amongst a lot of Republicans to accept a block grant uh, of any additional Medicaid money that would be available under the ACA, give it to us for four years, no strings attached, and then let's see where we are three years from now. Uh, Senator Schwartner thought about it. We talked about it over a couple of weeks, and then finally he said he just couldn't do it. Well, so um, uh, well, so we talked about changing sort of the political calculus behind the expansion. Obviously, you know, block grants maybe is one idea. As I understand it, I think maybe attempt. Yeah, I think. Texas requests for block grants have not been successful in the past, I think, under but it, but, but they hadn't been But they hadn't been requested by Democrats. Well, so I thought that if we had a bunch of Democrats and Republicans together reaching out to the administration, I think that they, I think we'd have had a shot. Well, Representative Price, you were on um, the Appropriations Committee. You all had a hearing where um, this 1115 waiver, a Medicaid, a five-year Medicaid waiver was discussed. It's about $29 billion from the federal government. Um, Texas just asked to renew that money, but the Obama administration has been, um, I think, pretty clear and showing in other states like Florida that, um, you know, they are, do not seem eager to renew all of that funding, a lot of which is paying for, um, you know, uninsured people going to hospitals. Um, you know, $29 billion is a lot of money. I wonder if that is enough to sort of change the political calculus behind, um, you know, how we talk about coverage expansion. Well, the 1115 waiver has been very successful, you know, in the state. And, and as you mentioned, the $29 billion worth of projects and, and uh, you know, the, the ingenuity and sort of the out-of-the-box thinking that's been involved in, in bringing health care and the delivery of health care to Texans that need it um, have, have really been a game changer. So it, it would be great if the uh, 1115 uh, were renewed and, and certainly. But it, but it sounds like, I mean, if we look at Florida as the example, 
Um, I mean, I think they, theirs was renewed, but only for two right. years, and it's drastically reduced levels. Right, and that could happen in Texas, uh, certainly. And the, the hearing that was conducted in late May uh, sort of highlighted that. Uh, hopefully the, uh, you know, I mean, one thing that I think they will look favorably upon was Texas' efforts to increase the rate for safety net hospitals, uh, trauma care hospitals, and rural hospitals, um, which we did. And, and everybody on this panel supported that. And so hopefully that will um, be something that puts into place a longer term, more sound funding structure that they will look favorably upon. And, you know, the, the same, you know, conditions could happen to Texas that happened in Florida, although their situation is a little different than we, than we are in. So uh, certainly we, uh, we're hoping for the best, but, but, you know, we have to be prepared for the worst. Can I just make it? Go ahead. Um, I, I, I agree with what Representative Price is saying, but it, it's my understanding that, and, and we have submitted an application to extend or renew the 1115 waiver. But my understanding is that the, the rules have changed a little bit, which would have a very negative impact on this state and others in our situation. And that is that the uncompensated care pool of money, that will not be used to reimburse hospitals for people who would otherwise be covered by Medicaid under an expansion program. That that's a that's a change in the principles or in the rules, and I think that's something that, that we have to look at very carefully. If we expand, of course, we continue to reap the benefits of that uncompensated care money. I think one thing that, and I'll just add this, and, and I know you need to move on, but, but I think the, the important thing to keep in mind, or at least something that I hear a lot of concern about, is sort of the long-term perspective as to how are we going to uh, continue to, if we were to expand, which I agree is not going to happen, um, how would we ever sustain that financially once the federal money goes away? Other states are having problems trying to figure that out now uh, that have made that choice. And right now, the funding for Health and Human Services, Edgar, as you mentioned, is approximately neck and neck and maybe surpassing in, in some metrics the spending on public and higher education, but it's roughly 37% for each. So when you take 37% for health and human, you take 37% for education, you know, that leaves just a very small portion of our state's budget to cover criminal justice and, and transportation and, and economic development, natural resources, the other areas of the state's uh, spending. So as the cost curve continues to grow and if we don't manage it correctly, then, you know, those other areas will be impacted by what we have to spend for entitlement programs in health and human. So I think it's important to keep you know, Texas is a big, diverse state, and we, we definitely want to manage our priorities, spend what we can to, to deliver the services that we need to deliver, but at the same time, do it efficiently and effectively. So we have to kind of take a long-term perspective there. Representative Coleman, I see your hand raised. Yeah, you know, first of all, um, Representative Zerwas and, and a group of us had a bill that uh, it's the Texas way. Uh, I filed a bill this last session, which was approximately a mirror of that bill, which included the ability to do a block grant, uh, you know, to look at personal responsibility uh, and, and the like. 
And that same piece of legislation actually brings us to the 1332 uh, waiver that you can turn in in, in 2017, which is the innovation uh, 27, which is the innovation waiver that waives a lot of the the gives flexibility where there wasn't there before, but waives the uh, personal ha having to have insurance. You can, you can even waive the exchange. You can bring in Medicare. There are all these things that have been people have been asking for that now have a possibility uh, in, in terms of, of applying for that flexibility. And I believe that that it should be done to the uh, to the request of the conservative nature of our legislature, uh, because people haven't had an opportunity to do that. I know this, that no state has ever applied for a block grant under the ACA or under in anything else. So I think that that discussion has to be had. Now, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm optimistic that under this circumstance, as we saw that Senator Swartner added, I don't know his direction, but he added block grants and uh, looking at a 1332 waiver in their Senate charges. Uh, this is the best opportunity to provide coverage in a different way uh, than we are doing it now under Medicaid, uh, but provide that coverage uh, to uh, adults in Texas. Uh, it may not, it wouldn't be Medicaid. It would be something different than that. Um, and I, I think that's the best way to, uh, to move forward. And have that trigger in there, too, that, that if the federal government cuts off the money, it goes away. Let's turn now to um, something I've spent the last several weeks writing about, which um, is a certain um, health care spending item that uh, took a big cut this year, and that's um, uh, Medicaid payments to pediatric um, therapy providers. Um, uh, I, you know, we've, the, the, the state has been in court over um, these cuts. We're expecting a trial in January. Um, I'm wondering, how did, those, how did those make it out of, uh, you know, how did those end up in the budget? And um, uh, I also want to know, is this something that you're hearing about from your constituents? Is, you know, is this just a media campaign taking place in Austin, or is this, are you hearing about this uh, in you guys' districts? <laughs> well, I'll... I'm not on the Appropriations Committee, but it, it's my understanding that something was done in the Conference Committee, and that the, it's called Rider 50, which um, arguably directed the state, the Health and Human Services Commission, to cut $150 million in state money, is that right, and $200 million in Roughly sure. federal money. Uh, out of out of the budget, and that would that has been there and is intended to support kids with acute and severe disabilities, and it, it pays for therapy and occupational, physical. Um, what's the third one? Uh, speech. Department of Energy. Well, so and and. and um, that it, that it was never that. In other words, it was my understanding is that it was added during the conference committee, and and so there wasn't a real opportunity for it to go through the the process of passing a bill. 
well, debating so, that. But, uh, but the one thing I want to add is that there was discussion in the House chamber, and the, the chairman of appropriations, John Otto, made it clear that he did not think that Rider 50 was in any way intended, intended to reduce access to care for this population and other populations. And, and then it, it got very confusing with what the Health and Human Services Department said in relation to why, how, did you study the impact? Did you look at access to care issues which are required by law? And, and, and it became this debate between the Health and Human Services Commission and Texas A&M University, which had been contracted with to produce some type of report. And it got very confusing. But I think almost all of us at one point or another weighed in and, and asked either Commissioner Trailer or, in the case of, of the Human Services Committee, CMS, to look very carefully about what was in through Rider 50. Um, Representative Price, I, uh, we're, we're, you were on the um, Appropriations Committee. What, what, what were these discussions like when, um, uh, when you know, this became sort of a focus of uh, budget reductions? Well, Representative Neistat's right in that uh, some of this was developed during the conference committee, and I was not a member of the conference committee, so I can't tell you what the debate and discussion was at that level, but I can tell you that even since 2009, this, is, this issue is not new or novel. Folks have understood that the cost and utilization rates associated with the acute care therapy reimbursements are rising. So there was a concern that Texas was, was paying more than for, for those services than some of the providers in the commercial market, and that we were out of line with other states. So that was the concern that existed even before uh, this, this issue you know, uh, was developed further in the conference committee. So I don't think anybody on this panel or in the, in the chamber really wanted Texas to pay more than they should be for these services. But I also think I can say that no one in the chamber would really like to see the access to care eliminated where it needs to be provided. So that was one of the reasons that prompted me to send a letter to Commissioner Trailer in early August saying, you know, especially in areas, for instance, where uh, we have rural communities needing access to care, if the rates were cut so drastically that it would severely impact their access or eliminate it altogether because it would be uneconomical, that was never the intention, in, in my estimation, of the rider. And that last phrase of the rider, not to impact you know, negatively the access to care, uh, is something that I think really is, is where we need to focus our, our effort. And I think that's where we are. So I think this measured approach is where we should be. Even if it means you, know, you have to pass a supplemental budget to pay, because yes. my understanding. Which you don't, you don't have to. Right. Oh, go, go no, on. I was, I was going to say you don't have to pass a supplemental budget because of transferability from program to program. And so uh, this amount of money that is saved from cutting these rates uh, doesn't have to be done for the budget to be whole. And, and that, that's what's, what's really important. Also, I think we should look forward about how we handle these issues. This is uh, through uh, ECI, uh, and it's for both poor children and for all children. And this is to have uh, them prepared uh, for school and help once uh, those children get into school. 
Matter of fact, our colleague, uh, Craig Island, took advantage and had to take advantage of these services for his children who had some things that they needed to catch up on. But I say this because what, when I was writing budgets, this was the stepchild. It was in between education uh, and health and human. And it really should be, in my opinion, in the education budget and funded as a part of our public education system because that's why it's there. Uh, and it's called IDEA, and it's very important. So, oh, and I sent a letter too and did all. <laughs> um, so, looking ahead, uh, you know, to next session, are we expecting any sort of big, um, contentious topics to come up? Or we, we Can I just <laughs> say one more thing? About, um, and that is that a district court judge in Travis County. Um, issued a ruling a few weeks ago that I was there. you were there. I was there. Were you the judge? I was not the judge. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. That, that gave a scathing, scathing overview. It was almost accusatory as to what the state had done and how the state had not complied with the Texas Administrative Code and other laws regarding access to care, impact, maximizing finances of federal money, maximizing the money that here they were talking about cutting, and issued a, a TRO, a temporary restraining order, which will, there will, will be a trial in January, right? Right, and, and the cuts are not taking effect until then. If, and if you get a chance. Look at up least. the ruling. It, it quickly, I've already talked to HHS about this back in August. Well, so, so these... The access to care issue. Right, and, and these sort of battles over how much should the state be paying individual types of providers come up every session, as you all know. Um, I'm wondering, sort of looking forward, can we expect to see, you know, um, I think, you know, basically every provider group in Texas would, would say we wish... Uh, you know, the state would reimburse us a little better out of Medicaid. Are we expecting, um, you know, sort of, wh where, do, where do next sessions, uh, big, uh, big health and human services fights sort of fall? Where are we expecting, Representative Raymond? I, I think it's, th this is just a, a good example of the push and pull you're going to see between uh, sort of parties, if you will. I mean, there are colleagues of mine on the Republican side that probably get more votes for being against Medicaid when they're campaigning. That's the reality, right? And so when you run into something like this that is a relatively small number in terms of the overall budget, it's, it's not a big deal for them. It's, you know, making sure that uh, you look at a Medicaid program that maybe we're spending too much on because we're, we're way above average or they're getting paid, the providers, you know, presumably getting paid a lot more than someone in the private sector. So all these things come into play. And it's just a symbol, I think, of the, again, the tug that we've got where there, there will continue to be in a state this big with as many people that are uninsured, many people that can't afford to, to, be, to have any kind of in, uh, coverage, where there, there's going to be tremendous need uh, on, on the healthcare front. And so going into the next session, which, whether it's this issue or others, you know, when it comes to uh, Medicaid, it, it, you know, it's just something we're going to debate where I expect Republicans, and quite frankly, I think a lot of us Democrats, maybe I hope every Democrat wants to make sure that when we're spending Medicaid dollars, 
we're doing it efficiently, we're doing it right, that if there's somebody out there cheating or doing something wrong or bilking the state, that we stop that. None of us are for that. And I think that, uh, you know, at times, uh, perhaps some of the Republicans are a little more zealous in that than they should, that, than they maybe needed to be. Maybe it's the right way to say it. But, but, but that's just the tug that's going to be there. Representative Cranover, I'd like to give you an opportunity to weigh in. But before I do that, I just want to say we're going to open it up uh, to audience questions after this. There should be mics in the back. I, I cannot see them, but <laughs> I think they're somewhere. Um, Everybody left. Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it's a re, uh, push. But there, of course, there is between Republicans and Democrats. But there's nobody on this panel that wants money misspent. So uh, when you do your due diligence and you try to be careful, and this, this was not a fraud situation, so I don't want you to infer that. But So you look back how badly we got stung on the orthodontics, where all sorts of kids were getting braces that it was not an appropriate use of money. Then we look at the huge dental fraud that we've gone through. I mean, that doesn't help anybody when somebody just becomes a millionaire stealing state money. So we have a solemn duty to the citizens and the taxpayers to be diligent about that. And, um, and we will always have that, that push-pull. Can I, can I just? Go ahead, briefly, just, and then we'll open it up to the okay. I, I just want to say, looking, looking to the next session, this is an example of where the legislature may have to bite the bullet, and that's looking at Medicaid reimbursement rates for doctors. And we, we didn't give docs. Are there some doctors in the room? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe lobbyists. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't increase the rates. There's somebody out there. And, and only 30% of primary care physicians accept Medicaid now. Only 34%. And that number, unless the legislature does something in relation to increasing Medicaid reimbursement rates, that number will only go down. So it's 34% now who accept Medicaid patients. What will it be if we do nothing again next session? So I'd, I'd like to open it up to the audience now. Um, please uh, just state your name, and, and I'll take a cue from my boss here and say, please make sure also that your question ends in a question mark. and. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, whoever's, uh, I, hey. I think I see somebody from over here. So. Okay, I'll go ahead. Uh, Dennis Borrell, Coalition, Coalition of Texans with Disabilities. So I represent a lot of low-income people with disabilities who access services to the state that are initially funded by general revenue that draws down federal money. Now in the last session, there were some like uh, tax cuts and then there's gonna be this diversion of general revenue to transportation calling this the incredible shrinking general revenue situation, I'm kind of worried that future sessions, especially if there's an economic downturn, what the comptroller just said, that there is some revenue downturn, and my folks are going to end up being uh, kind of taking a hit on this. What's your take? So, so I think the question is, in a year of, you know, large tax cuts, um, are we risking, you know, if we're taking that out of health care, are we risking squeezing people out? Well, uh, but that means that we have to be, if that's the case, if the revenue estimate uh, doesn't bring us enough money to cover the budget for the next two years, 
We have uh, 10 or 11 billion in the rainy day fund, which we refuse to use. And we should use that to cover any gap anywhere uh, in the next session. The challenge is, you're right, we have taxes that we've cut, and those are really permanent tax cuts that allow us not to have money uh, for the things that you're talking about, and that's why it's disturbing, because that goes to Elliot's comments about Grover Norquist, because that is how you do it. You divert the money to something else, and it stays there permanently, or for a period of time where you cannot recoup that money if you have a doubt. So I agree with you. And may I add, Edgar, real quick? I think that concern's a valid one. I hear, you know, it's spun two different ways. Uh, there are folks that are grateful that that money is dedicated, so it's sort of taken out of the hands of the legislative body, you know, so that they can't spend it the way they want to, I think is the way I've heard it, you know, suggested. But, but I think that it's a, it's a valid concern, I mean, because every, every bit of money that is dedicated, for instance, to transportation, which I think is needed, but at the same time, it does take it off the table for other areas. And as uh, we, we continue to see some of these areas grow, it just, it's, it's going to be something we have to continually fight to balance uh, the appropriate way. Let me just make a quick comment. Um, as far as starving the beast and Grover Norquist, let me be clear that he doesn't want to starve the beast, government, in terms of everything. Um, my feeling is that Grover and Governor Perry and others do not believe that it's the role of government to do what FDR did with the New Deal or LBJ did with the Great Society and War on Poverty. So government money should be spent transportation, on building border fences, on water issues, all important issues, but health, human services, issues that affect low-income people, minorities, people with disabilities, let's starve the beast so that those people don't look to government to be their savior and give people back their tax money. Let's uh, take the next question over here. My name's uh, John Sego. I had a question about advanced uh, directives. Uh, kind of nationwide, we're seeing in the last two decades, we've seen new models uh, around advanced directives and advanced care planning. Um, and the most prominent one is POLST uh, as a new model. And some healthcare systems in Texas are already using a POLST model. Um, and there's pushes by the Texas Medical Association and some other groups to have that conversation in the legislature. Um, do any of you on the panel have an idea about how you feel about the new model for advanced directives called uh, Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment? Uh, the acronym is POLST. I think they're calling it MOST here in Texas. Well, um, I guess I have to respond to that as well. I, I did the bill on advanced directives with uh, Senator Moncrief back in the, I think, the nine, late 90s. And I think we need to look at other ways for people to plan and about their lives in those advanced directives, particularly if that advanced directive is verbal, uh, just like the one in uh, Fort Worth where uh, the woman was brain dead and she had told her husband what her wishes were. Um, I think more people need to do advanced directives. I don't know about this particular uh, program, but anything that encourages people to uh, let their wishes be known uh, to their families is extremely important uh, because that's where the dispute, dispute, because usually it ends up being a family dispute, quite frankly, not a hospital uh, or doctor family interaction, but the difference between 
uh, a, a, a spouse or a sibling and a parent. Um, so I, I think we should continue to address issues like that, just like we did this session with uh, tube feeding, uh, the, the bill that, that was done. And, and it, 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 what, what most important is we don't throw the, the baby out with bathwater by bringing a bill that would change the whole system to the floor. That's my opinion. I stick by the bill that I passed. Yeah, I, I think we, let me, I want to weigh in. Uh, it's something I've worked on, and, and uh, I do think that we've got to do a better job of making sure that, you know, that's such a sensitive issue. I've, I've dealt with it in my own family, and, um, and I had to ask a lot of questions, and, and i seen the dynamic with one of my best friends, actually my best friend growing up, uh, where he had a head injury, and, uh, and it was a situation where they clearly wanted to pull the, I mean, I'll just be candid, they wanted to pull the plug. And had I not shown up, his mother was there, his sister was there, he's, he's divorced at this point. His son, his 18-year-old son was there. And they, they were gonna get run over. That's a fact. They were gonna get run over and, and um, had I not been there to ask a lot of questions, to have the, um, the doctors there explain things to his mom and so forth, um, his, his life would have ended uh, within a day. And so I, I think we have to set up a situation where Families are not, I don't know how else to say it, I, I try to speak a, a plain talk here, where families are not run over. It's great if there's a, if there's a directive in place, that's great, uh, but even at times when there is, I think you find, at least I've heard by now, situations, and I've seen situations where, um, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult position because the, the medical personnel who are there, the doctors, et cetera, uh, may think, hey, if it's up to them or if it's up to the board, their uh, committee, the review committee at a hospital, that it's time for that person to be let go. But that's not the wishes of the, of the family and maybe not even the wishes of the person. And I just think we've got to do a better, get to a better place to where I, that doesn't happen. I, I, don't, I don't want people to get run over, and there are too many people. Look, I, doctors or some, some of my best friends are doctors. I'll say it like that. And, and we listen to them, we hold them as a society, we hold doctors in very high regard. We listen to them. They give us, they tell us to do something, we think that's the right way to go. Uh, sometimes I believe that, that uh, it becomes a situation where it might not be where the family wants to go, and it might be where the doctor or, or again, a committee wants to go. I, I wanna make sure we have, have time to get to yeah. some more audience questions. Quick comment. Just, um, I think we, uh, risk doing great harm for the government to be involved in this. I think we need our doctors to be better educated about talking about end-of-life issues. I think families need to all realize that, yes, none of us are going to outlive eternity, that we all, and I think, but I think the conversation there, we need to grow in that conversation instead of risk doing harm by legislation. The only thing I'll say, and I have to say something, because uh, there is the ability, and what I, this is, I've been dealing with this since uh, Bush first vetoed the bill. He was the governor. The first bill we passed, and we modified the bill uh, so that there is clear that you can have a transfer before treatment. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. We made some improvements this session by uh, Representative uh, Springer, I believe, did the bill. Uh, but we have to be careful how we move forward, um, and, and there may be some things that need to be tightened up. 
but I, I, I just want to be, be clear about that because, um, you know, having been the author of the bill, uh, we haven't been able to make modifications to bring it to the floor. And it is an important issue. Um, we'll take the next question from over here. Yes, my name is Glenn Williams. Where are we regarding future consolidation of the Health and Human Services agencies, specifically Department of Family and Protective Services? I know uh, I'll jump in and answer that best I can. The uh, uh, Senate Bill 200 and, and several of the other bills that were passed as a result of the last interim Sunset Commission findings uh, puts into motion a, a consolidation of the five agencies down to three. Um, but largely the, the initial phase of that consolidation really focuses, uh, I think, primarily on DARS and DADS consolidation under the HHSC umbrella. DFPS and, uh, and DISHES, D D Department of State Health Services, uh, except for some very limited social, I mean, licensing. licensing, I guess that's true, the licensing and some other services which will be consolidated or left largely alone at this point. So that process is just very, very new. The agency is working on uh, the, the consolidation effort and to develop a plan as we speak. The uh, Transition Legislative Oversight Committee, which is a committee um, Chairman Raymond is on, as well as, as, as myself and, and other members of the House and the Senate, and then three uh, gubernatorial appointees will start meeting in January and then meet quarterly to hear reports back from the agency on how that is uh, projected to be undertaken and, and review the progress. So um, it's very early into that process right now. The first hearing organizationally will be uh, right after the first of the year and then uh, meet every quarter per the statute. So uh, I think we're, we'll get a little better idea of how uh, that will look based on the agency's report when we, when we start to meet uh, in, in about 90 days. Thank you. Uh, Reginald Smith, I'm at the School of Social Work. Uh, I work on prisoner reentry issues and I'm from the 147th district as a matter of fact. Uh, as we have the largest prison population in the country now, and as you alluded to earlier, Representative Price, uh, the county jail, Harris County Jail, now basically is a, a major mental health provider. Uh, we see that uh, we're starting to see a, a decrease in the prison population, small, but still a decrease. And so as these uh, inmates, they transfer back into the community, most of them are clustered into districts like 147. And so our health care, our community care, I don't know about in Denton, but our community care like in 147th are overburdened. And so I'd just like to know, also uh, Michael Botticelli was here a few months ago and I asked him about this and he said that they were looking at trying to uh, qualify people while they were still in prison for Medicaid. Now, of course, we know that the conservative legislature has no Sir, bill. Sorry, we it. just have a few minutes. The, yeah, okay, but is. my point is this. What do you plan to do? If you're not going to expand the Medicaid, what do you plan to do uh, with the onslaught of elderly people and uh, returning prisoners to these communities? Well, in, in terms of health care, uh, we're better off in the larger communities because of our hospital districts that uh, actually will treat uh, individuals up to 200% of poverty at, at this time. Um, 
so there are ability for people to get care with, uh, and what people are talking about now is more of a sliding scale uh, circumstance. But that's not the case in other communities uh, where they're smaller and raise less money through uh, their ad valorem taxes for the, uh, their hospital district. It's just the large urban counties, and we're different. Like San Antonio is 75% of poverty. Uh, I think Dallas and Houston are 200%. Uh, so, so, so that's the safety net. Uh, the, the, the goal is to have all individuals who, who could enroll in uh, Obamacare do so if we had uh, a coverage expansion. Uh, that would decrease the amount of dollars spent by the county hospital districts, but we're not there yet. Um, so it, it's tough, but you know, the reality is uh, that's what we've decided to do as a state, and that system is still in place. Go ahead. Yeah, as far as re-entry, sir, as far as re-entry, we need to enhance programs and services for former felons and others who are trying to re-enter re the community. One example is that this session we passed a bill that authorizes former, well, convicted felons who have done their time in prison to be eligible, and these are drug felons, felony level, to be eligible for food stamps upon their release. This is a major step. Some of us have worked on that for years. As far as what's happening within the system, uh, an example is that last session we, we passed a law that instead of automatically terminating Medicaid benefits for kids who end up in the juvenile justice system instead of automatically terminating the benefits so it can take two months on their release to get their health care coverage again. We now suspend the benefits so when they do their time, they automatically are back on Medicaid or CHIP and most of them, if not all, will still be eligible. We need to do that for the adult prison population. Right. Uh I think we're about out of time, but I want to thank you and uh, give our panelists a hand. Thank you so much for being here.